the rock. What is the rock? The words of Jesus put into practice. Let's try that again. What is the rock that we are to found our life on? The words of Jesus put into practice. This is the picture that I want you to think about as you think about the rock. We are to found our life. The, the footings of our, of our homes, our life, should be down deep into the rock of God's word. Down deep into the words of Jesus. But not just the words. This isn't just about knowledge. This is about knowledge that changes us. It changes the inside of us in such a way that we are different in the way we live our life. Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That is what we are learning about today. Well, last week, I gave you an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. So some of you weren't here last week, or some of you online maybe haven't seen last week's sermon. I encourage you to go and go to our YouTube channel, New Life Church of God, and watch or listen to that message as it will help you get a big picture of what the Sermon on the Mount is and how it fits into the wider, larger book of Matthew and even how it fits into the whole understanding of Christian life. I, I told you last week about some of the misunderstandings and misuses of the Sermon on the Mount that have crept up over the last 2,000 years of church history. But I also told you about three groups of people that were around Jesus when he preached. The disciples, the crowd, and the religious leaders. The disciples were those who are willing to say, Jesus is my Lord. They've made the declaration, and they're living with Jesus as Lord. The crowd are the people who are undecided about Jesus. They would not say Jesus is their Lord, but they're, they're open to hearing more, to see if Jesus is really who he said he was. While the religious leaders were quite literally, the enemies of Jesus. They did not believe Jesus was Lord. They were not open to ever believing that Jesus was Lord. They were enemies of Jesus. So last week, that message was about the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we're going to begin our study and application of the Sermon on the Mount. Join me in prayer, please. God, as we are looking to open your word now, it's with humbleness, that I ask that you would be here. Holy Spirit, we're not going to understand this without you. We can't. So please be here and speak to us. May, may our hearts be open to receiving from your word, out of your word, what we need to hear and understand to be better disciples, followers of you. Amen. So, this particular message I have struggled with. Uh, this has been a struggling, difficult week for me for two reasons. The first is that I'm preaching today on what is known as the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. That's very humbling, and here's why. Because if you were listening last week, I told you that this is the sermon that tells us how to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. That is humbling. I don't know if you've ever considered this from a pastor's perspective, but I'm going to be trying to explain to you the very words of Jesus in the very sermon that determines what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That is ridiculously crazy humbling. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the KFC family team made me go way outside of my comfort zone on Wednesday. And they made me go outside of my comfort zone by doing two things. The first was by being a puppeteer. I have never puppeted. Okay? Um, I sometimes go like this to people, but that's not usually a complimentary thing. Okay? Right? So, that's something else. So, I, I had to be a puppeteer, but... You know, when you make your puppeteering debut, wouldn't it be nice to do it with some, like, lesser character? Maybe kind of someone who's, like, 
secondary to what's really going on so that you're just kind of a little side thing, you know? No. Do you know what Kim and Joanne say to me? We want you to make your puppeteering debut with Jesus the puppet. I have rarely felt the amount of anxiety that I felt on Wednesday in my entire life. Do you know what it would be? Just imagine your brain. You're going to represent Jesus as a puppet to a group of families watching. Now, in some kind of weird way, I suppose, like, that's kind of what I do when I preach. Like, I'm representing Jesus. But, man, when you add a layer of I don't really know what I'm doing, my brain was, like, dripping blood out my ears. So, this has been a week of intense anxiety. I really wish Jesus could just come and preach to us. Like, I would very much like to be in the chairs today. I don't really want to be up here because the weight is too heavy for me. That's how I feel. I just wanted you to know. The other thing is, I'm not real happy about being up on stage. I kind of wish that I was just down on your level when I preach most of the time. I understand I'm up here so you can see better, but I don't like the symbolism of that, right? So, just so you know, I am a disciple with you, okay? When I'm reading this, these words of Jesus, I'm where you're at, listening, trying to correct my own heart, trying to follow Jesus as, as the best I can. That's how I wanted to open my message today. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Now before we go into the next verse, do you know what that must have looked like? Now Mark and Barb, you know, because you've been there. You've been to the Mount of Beatitude. Now, I've got two little pictures that don't do justice. So that is one possible location of, the, of where Jesus actually delivered this sermon. The Sea of Galilee is down there, and there's a nice... It's not really a mountain the way we think of a mountain. It's, it was more like, it's more like a gradual hill. And so there's a gradual hill down to the water. And you can see it overlooks the Sea of Galilee, and you can kind of see the other side. That is one of the likely locations of where Jesus gave this sermon. There's actually a church that is built on that location. Mark and Barb, you've been to that church. And then, just to give a little perspective, one more picture. There is the whole area with the church, and you can see down to the water where Jesus probably gave this message. Mark and Barb, that's correct, right? What was it like being there? Was it, did it change you? It was humbling. And Jim Lyon probably gave a message right there on that plane, right? He didn't do that? What? You were tempted. I, if I go there, which I will someday, I'm probably going to preach, at least read the Sermon on the Mount to who's ever with me. So that's what I want in your brain as you think about the location as Jesus begins to talk, Okay? So now, now when he saw his, the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. So he saw the crowds, right? So there's crowds, but he teaches the disciples. See, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, okay? So the ones he's delivering this message to are the ones who have already said, Jesus is Lord. Got that? And now, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I just want to pause there. I'm going to spend most of my time on this first beatitude and then go quickly through the other seven. Because of all of the ways that I would expect Jesus to start, this is not my expectation. Think about this. The way I've set this up for you in the past two weeks, 
These three chapters of Scripture are the description of how to follow Jesus in real life. The words of Jesus put into practice. This is literally how you are to put the words of Jesus into practice. And he starts with this. Blessed are the poor or blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I find that to be a completely surprising way to start this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, we've got to define some terms if we're going to have any chance of understanding what Jesus is talking about. First of all, just a general term. I've said these to you before a couple years ago, but I just want to remind you. They're called the Beatitudes. Okay? These are eight things that Jesus says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. They're called the Beatitudes. The reason they're called the Beatitudes, this is just helpful information. It actually comes from the Latin word beatitudo or beatus. That's because the first word in Greek of every one of these eight things, that word blessed or blessed, you can say it either way, in the Latin version of the Bible called the Vulgate that the Catholic Church used for over a thousand years, the first word was Beatitudo, and that means blessed. So the reason they're called Beatitudes is because it comes from the Latin Beatitudo, which means blessed. Again, these these are not meant to be tricky names for these things, okay? It simply is the first word, blessed. So instead of calling them the Beatitudes, you could just call them the blessings. The blessings. That's what, this, that's what these are. That's the name of them, the blessings. So, what does the word blessed or blessed mean? Now, here's where it gets tricky. Because what we think of when we think of the word blessed might not be right. So, go ahead. With the person next to you, I want you just to define the word blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Go ahead. Have a conversation. This is one of those words where it seems like it ought to be easy to define, and yet when you really get into it, it's like, maybe that's not quite as easy as I thought. So, in Greek, the word blessed, so I told you what it was in Latin, right? Beatitudo. In Greek, the word is actually makarios. Makarios, the definition, I'm just going to read it to you, is a state of existence in relationship to God in which a person is blessed from God's perspective, even when he or she doesn't feel happy or isn't presently experiencing good fortune. Now, this is, this is tricky, okay? Because if I say, oh, that person's so blessed, I usually think of one or, one or two things. I think, number one, they've got money, okay? Like, Right away, my brain goes to, well, they're really blessed. Well, they're really doing well financially, is another way of saying that. Or my mind, the second thing my mind jumps to is if, if someone says, well, they're really blessed, I think about, well, they have some special ability that's better than most people, right? Wow, they're such a blessed basketball player, or they've really been blessed with the gift of singing, right? So I think about, immediately, my thought of blessing is like, it's either you've either got money or you've got talent or somehow you, you've been given talent or you've been given money or, and you've also worked toward that to get more money or to get more talent. You've refined your skills and now that's a blessing. I got news for you about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not about that kind of blessing. And this is where it gets real tricky. Because what we understand and have been told our entire life is blessing is upside down in the kingdom of God. And that's why the Beatitudes, the blessings, are super difficult to preach, to teach, and especially to live. Because the kingdom of God that Jesus calls us to is not what we think it ought to be. So let's talk about it. To be blessed is not 
a feeling. Okay? And we usually think it's a feeling. Like if, you, if someone says, oh, you're really blessed, you're like, yes, I feel great. Right? Yes. I've, I think things are going really well. I am blessed. Right? That's what we think. Well, you're so blessed that, uh, you know, your grades are really good. Yes, I am blessed that God gave me smarts, and I've worked really hard to keep those A's. If you asked me in high school, I would have said that. And I would have said, 4.0. Okay? Can I suggest to you something from Jesus? That is precisely opposite of what Jesus is talking about. Blessed is not about being happy or prosperous. Oh, there's a difficult word for us. Because the whole goal of everything that we do, pretty much in America, is with the goal of prosperity at the end. There's an entire branch of the church right now that believes that prosperity is the goal. And that if you just trust God enough, He will bless you with money, with prosperity, with a good job, with a good wife, with a house, with 2.4 cars and a dog and three kids, and you'll just be blessed. That is not the blessing that we're talking about here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, the kind of blessing Jesus is talking about, and this gets really tricky, it has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has nothing to do with how well you're doing in life. It has nothing to do with prosperity. It has nothing to do with whether you are sick or well. It has nothing to do with whether you have pain or you don't have pain. Now, there's another thing in our society. Without, like, we will go to ridiculous lengths to avoid pain. Whatever we got to do to avoid pain, we'll do it. And someone is really in bad shape if they're in pain. Oh, they're in pain. That's the worst thing that could possibly be. Now, I don't want pain for anybody. But the worst thing that you can be is not be in pain. There, there's, there's way worse things than being in pain. So when we think about being blessed, if we think about it in terms that we normally think about, you will not understand anything about the foundational structure of being a follower of Jesus Christ. This is precisely at odds with what we are trying to do in the United States of America most of the time. I, somehow, I've got to get this idea that everything about being a follower of Jesus is upside down from what you've normally been taught. How do I do that? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard for me. So what does being poor in spirit mean? So now we've talked about why is it called the Beatitudes. We've talked about what does it really mean to be blessed or to be blessed. And now we're going to talk about what does it mean to be poor in spirit. <laughs> well, it gets even trickier now. It gets even more difficult. Because being poor in spirit, first of all, it starts with this. Let's just lay the first foundation and then we'll get deeper. Being poor in spirit, on the surface level, it also means being poor. <laughs> like financially. The reason we know that is because there are parallel passages in the book of Luke. Where Luke just says, blessed are the poor. He leaves out the in spirit. I think that's Luke chapter 6. I preached on that a number of Sundays ago. Probably, it was, in fact, it was 2020. It was right after we came back from COVID. I preached on the, the Beatitudes in Luke. So it does mean poor. There is something of a blessing from God in being poor. It's upside down. Because our whole life, our whole existence is built around the idea that it is the opposite of blessing to be poor. Right? But that's just the surface. Let's go underneath. Poor in spirit. I just want to read this thing to you. 
but also persons who are spiritually and emotionally oppressed, disillusioned, and in need of God's help are those who are poor in spirit. Those who have experienced the harsh side of life in which deprivation and hunger are their regular lot and have no resources of their own to make anything of their lives. This also includes those who recognize that they can produce no spiritual or religious self-help before God. They are spiritually bankrupt. Now, this goes against everything we understand. Poor in spirit means you recognize that you don't have what you need to be successful. Because you need God. Poor in spirit are the very opposite of those who think they have what they need. So again, going back to the disciples, the crowd, and the religious leaders. The religious leaders, they could be defined as the opposite of poor in spirit. Okay, does that help? Poor in spirit is the opposite of being the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So those people that think they've got it all figured out, and they can do it all on their own power, they can be religious through their own strength, are not poor in spirit. They will not be blessed. You want to be blessed by God? In fact, do you want the kingdom of heaven? then approach God with a recognition that you have nothing that you need to be successful. This flies right in the face of everything we're taught is virtuous about being an American in this country. Because in America, you just got to work hard. You can do anything you want, just work hard. You can pull yourself up by your bone bootstraps. Just get your fingernails dirty. Just put some elbow grease into it. How many cliche phrases do I need to bring up that get convince you of this? In America, we've been taught that you just got to work hard enough and you will succeed. The very first words of Jesus' sermon that tells us how to be disciples is this. You can't do it yourself. You're not strong enough. And the sooner you realize that you're not strong enough is the sooner you will be blessed and become a part of the kingdom of heaven. Now again, I want to be careful here. These are not entrance requirements for the kingdom. Jesus is already talking to disciples, right? They've already said Jesus is Lord. So he's saying as disciples, this is what your life will look like. As disciples of Jesus Christ, you will be characterized by the fact that you are humble in the sight of God and you know you can't do it yourself. You know it. In fact, your very personhood, your very identity is such that you know this is not possible without God. I can't do it myself. This is a fundamental premise of holiness that People misunderstand about holiness churches. When we say we can have victory over sin, people say, well, that's not possible. It's not possible by our own strength because we can't do anything by our own strength. We only can do things by the strength that God gives to us. It's extremely difficult for us to wrap our minds around this because we're taught just work hard. But I'm here to tell you from Jesus Christ himself, followers of, followers of Jesus, disciples, thinking you can do it by yourself is not good. It's not good. Spiritually, the idea of hard work is a precarious one because, of course, we're supposed to seek God with all that we are. I mean, there's, there's a level of effort involved. So like Matthew 22, 37 through 40 says, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You guys, we are supposed to give all that we are. 
But we don't give all that we are in the expectation that all we are is all we need. We give all that we are with the understanding that it's not even close to enough. It's nowhere near sufficient. It is infinitely lacking. When you approach God with the humbleness that comes with knowing you can't do it yourself, you will be blessed and the kingdom of heaven will be yours. Wow. Seeking God with all that we are does not mean that we can do it on our own. Do you see how these two ideas get mixed up? Self-sufficiency, can I, I need to say this is important, okay? Self-sufficiency is not a virtue in the Christian life. Self-sufficiency is not a virtue in the Christian life. It is a vice. We need to be reliant on God, and here's the tricky part that most people don't like, and each other to pursue the kingdom of heaven. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Relying on God and relying on others because we don't have it within ourselves. But relying on God and relying on others is super dangerous, isn't it? Isn't it easy just to hide in your own little closed world? I don't need the church to be a Christian. Do you understand that the very phrase itself goes against the opening premise of the Sermon on the Mount? The very phrase that you don't need to go to church goes against the very idea of being poor in spirit. We are followers of Jesus Christ, and that starts with the implication. It starts with the understanding that you can't do it on your own. That's where it starts. It starts with coming to Christ with an attitude of, I am not self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency leads to greater and greater arrogance. True pursuit of God leads to greater and greater humbleness. Recognizing that we are spiritually bankrupt goes hand in hand with being a citizen of the kingdom of God. Having a constant recognition that we are in spiritual poverty is the way kingdom citizens exist. Now, I didn't say you just live in sin. That's not what I said. But recognizing that your victory over sin is completely with God is what I said. You can't do it yourself. Not even close. Being poor in spirit is living with a constant state of humbleness about your ability to live the Christian life. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. John 15, 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, what does that say? Say it. Apart from me, you can't do anything. You can't do anything. I can't do anything. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Can you say that? Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Is that hard even to say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now we can begin to understand what Jesus is getting at to begin his sermon on the mount. This entire enterprise of trusting Jesus begins, is sustained by, and ends with putting our trust completely in Jesus and not in our own strength. That's how it starts. That's how discipleship starts. Do you understand? Jesus started here on purpose. Our discipleship starts with recognizing we can't do it on our own. That's the starting place. It's precisely the opposite starting place of the religious teachers of Jesus' day. It is completely in opposite of where they thought they could be. And your attitude matters. Your attitude matters. The attitude we begin our following of Jesus matters. Do you come to Jesus with an attitude that you are already pretty good? That you, you've developed over many years some really good strategies for 
keeping sin under control. If you have that attitude, you are going to sin. (laughs) We talked a little bit about Teen Challenge in Sunday school this morning. You go in with an attitude where you can do it yourself, you're going to be back in Teen Challenge. You can't do it yourself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. All right. I'm going to go through the other seven quickly. If you can understand the first one, the other seven become much more clear. Okay? Here we go. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Wow. That's upside down. We're not supposed to want to mourn, are we? Mourning is something to be avoided, isn't it? Well, there's two things I want to say about this. The first goes along with Psalm 147.3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God draws near to people who are mourning. And that's a blessing, isn't it? For those of you that have experienced deep, deep mourning because you've lost somebody, most of the people I talk to who are strong Christians that have lost somebody will say, although it was incredibly difficult, I wouldn't give up what God provided for me during that time. Blessed, blessed are those who mourn. But I would add something more to this. When we think of the word mourning, we almost always think about the loss of someone close to us, a death. But Jesus has much more in mind than that type of mourning in this beatitude. Because there is a type of mourning that happens when you mourn for things like the state of our culture. I am mourning the state of our culture in this country. That is explained also in Psalms. Look at Psalm 119-136, that incredible psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible that is devoted to the Word of God. This is how that psalm ends. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. I mourn for that. I mourn as a pastor for my flock. I, I mourn when I see people have a choice between choosing God wholeheartedly or choosing God reservedly. That makes me mourn. It makes me lose heart. You see that? I, I, I see people who make choices in their life. They've got this moment when they can go, I'm all in for God, or they say, I'm kind of just, I'm kind of just taking Jesus like it's more of a hobby. I'm kind of I'm calling, kind of taking the church like it's just sort of one of those things I do in life that I'm super busy with. And you know, I'd like to read scripture every day, and I know that I should, but man, I just don't have time. I just don't have time as a pastor. It makes me mourn. There is a kind of mourning that accompanies kingdom citizenship. It's more than just the loss of a loved one. It's, it's when you see people make choices. And so many of you in here have children or grandchildren who are far from the Lord. What does that do? That mourning is, I would argue, almost worse than the loss of a loved one. The only thing that makes it not worse is that there's still hope for them to change. But do you see the kind of mourning I'm talking about? It's a deep mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. But now listen, for they will be comforted. When you mourn in that way that I'm talking, the kind of mourning that happens in Psalm 119, Jesus says that kind of mourning is accompanied by comfort from the Lord. 
blessing is not about how you feel in the moment. It's about how God sees things. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Man, I hate this one. Because I don't know about you, but I have never wanted to be described as meek. Like when I go play racquetball with the guys, like I don't want them to say, wow, Jason, you were really meek today. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's not what I want. I want like, man, you were a stud. Couldn't get a ball past you. Have you been working out? How much buckthorn have you been pulling? Come on. And I'm just like, yeah. You know, that's what I want. Like, I, I want some man. I want some macho. I want some bravado. Right? And then I was like, Jesus, blessed are the meek. Right? What? I don't want to be meek. Right? So what is Jesus talking about here? Because I don't want that. I know people, there are people that have left the Christian faith because of the Beatitudes. They're like, if this is what it is, I don't want it. Because I don't want that. I don't want to be meek. Well, what is meekness? Let's define the word. And then we might understand. Because meekness and gentleness, are, they go together. They're like basically the same word. Gentleness. Do you know that gentleness is the only word that Jesus used to describe himself? Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. So let me ask you, you want to be like Jesus? Because if you do, Gentleness will be part of you. So what is gentleness, though? This is tough, because gentleness always, in my brain, says weakness. But that's not true. I love what Chuck Swindoll says about this. Chuck Swindoll, he preached a series of sermons on the Beatitudes at, at the Sea of Galilee, at that spot I showed you earlier. So that would be a fun place to listen to a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. And he described, in that moment, gentleness as this. This is helpful Gentleness is strength under control. Gentleness is strength under control. And as soon as Chuck Swindoll said that, and I was listening to that sermon, what my mind went to was a lion picking up her cub. Like that lion could literally crush the head of that little cub. Right? But just gentleness to pick up that little baby and to carry it where it needs to go strength under control so next time i play racquetball if you say wow you were really meek today that's because i annihilated you with precision shots that's what that means which does happen occasionally although not nearly as much as it used to so strength under control strength under control that is meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 6. Oh, by the way, one more thing I got to say before we go there. Strength under control, but control of whom? God. Strength and gentleness is when you give your strength to God and let him control it. Strength under control. See that? It's not just your own control. See how we, we always jump right into it's still all about us? Do you see that? We jump right into it. Yeah, I can be strong under control. Gentleness is when you have submitted your life completely to God, including all of the strength that you have in such a way that other people recognize it as gentleness. That's good stuff. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Ooh. Hunger and thirst. Man, as a pastor, do I long for this. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm teaching something and people are just like, oh, right? And they, they, can't, they just can't. Now, some of that is because all kinds of stuff's going on in life. I get that. 
But you know what? I, I, I just love it. I love it when people are like on the edge of their seats, not because of what I'm saying, but because of what they're learning in the Word. Right? Like they can't get enough. I cannot. By the way, timeline small group tonight, I am not going past 720. Just saying. Okay? Because sometimes the timeline small group, I can't get out of there. Like I've been going all day. Like I'm up here, I'm going like this because my knees are about to give out. And they're just like writing notes. I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Because they're hungry. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We're going after it again tonight. Church history, man. Yes. They're all excited. Well, I shouldn't speak for them. Some of them are mildly excited. Okay? I mean, but really, that's the kind of hunger I'm talking about. You know, when you're hungry, think about it. If you're starving, what does that feel like when you get your first little taste of peanut butter? For those of you that did 30-hour famines with me as youth pastor, do you remember? Do you remember? That first little glob of peanut butter that you got? It was the best thing you've ever tasted. That's what it should be like when you get in God's Word. That's what it should be like when you do the right thing, when you had the option to do the wrong thing. Like, yes, I'm hungry for it. I want more. I want more. That's what followers of Jesus are like. So, what happens in your life when you drift away from God? It looks something like this. Ah, I don't really have time to go to the Bible today. And then you open the Bible and you're just like, oh, I just can't concentrate. I'll just go watch four hours of YouTube. Or, let me put this another way, I'll just go garden for a while. Because that's where I meet with God. Maybe you do meet with God there, okay? But maybe you just don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Could be. Throwing that out there. You got to check your attitude, check your motives, guys. If you just can't get in God's word, something's not right. I've encouraged you to be part of the discipleship bands. And I've said the whole time, if God's not calling you to do it, that's okay. And it is. I mean that. But I'll say the same thing I said in Sunday school this morning. If you have decided not to be in a discipleship band because God has told you in your heart not to do it, great. But then don't just go on like nothing's changed in your life. Don't just go on not being in God's word for six out of the seven days of the week. So if you don't want to be in a discipleship band, that's fine. That is one way to draw closer to God in scripture and with other people. If that's not something that you feel called by God to do in this season of life, fine. But then you still got to do it. It's part of being a follower of Christ. You still got to be in his word. You see what I'm saying? Just because God said no to discipleship bands does not mean you can just go on like everything's the, the way it was before. That's not at all what I mean by that. And I will never pressure you to be in a discipleship band. So don't hear it that way. The enemy would love for what I just said to sound like an accusation. And I rebuke the enemy in that, in the name of Jesus Christ, that that would not come in your mind. But listen, though, about what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Flip that around. You want to be empty? You want to be hollow? You got the choice. You know, when you're really hungry and starving, if you don't get food or drink, you die. If you didn't have Scripture and were in Scripture, would you die? Or would it not affect you whatsoever? Think about that. Think about it. If you just never were in Scripture, would it, would it make any difference to your life at all? Like, or would it just be the same as what you are now? Because if that's the case, heads up. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, of course, mercy is a central theme in the entire revelation of God. Without God's mercy, we are toast. And I mean that figuratively and literally. Crispy critter. 
without God's mercy, right? So, to be merciful is a recognition of all the stuff that Jesus talks about. If, if someone asks for forgiveness, you forgive them. And how many times do you forgive? Seven times 70, right? Now, we've also talked about forgiveness is the way Jesus forgave us. How did Jesus forgive us? We say we're sorry for our sin. We ask for forgiveness. We repent of our sin. We turn from it. All of that's connected. But an attitude of mercy is such that if someone approaches you in that way, you offer forgiveness. You offer mercy every time. Mercy is the idea that when you see people in need, your heart goes out. Right? You're not calloused by life. No matter how many times you've been burned by people that tried to scan you, right? You still, you care for people. And by the way, if you don't do that, you won't also be shown mercy. Heads up on that. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I only want to say one brief thing about this, because purity in heart is fairly self-explanatory. But remember the religious leaders... And contrast them with Jesus. The religious leaders had decided that Jesus was not Lord. But the religious leaders, the way they lived their life of faith was all on the outside. Do you remember what Jesus said about them? Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. A a key difference between the religious leaders and Jesus The religious leaders lived their faith on the exterior, but not the interior. Jesus was saying, you've got to get right with God on the inside, and then the outside will take care of itself. You see the difference? A key feature and the difference between the religious leaders of Jesus' day and Jesus was Jesus started on the inside. They started on the outside. Make sense? So blessed are the pure in heart. Purity starts on the inside. Number nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The theme of peace, shalom, is all through the biblical record. It indicates a completeness. Remember the sermon on shalom we did just a a month or two ago. This idea of sacrificing for peace. Striving for peace as the best hoped for outcome. Now, you got to balance that. I'm not talking about compromising on Christ. Look at Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 10. So only five chapters later, Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 35. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. How do you match that up with Jesus and the Beatitudes? Well, the answer is, we seek peace but not the compromising of our faith in Christ, right? We always will seek peace. We will seek the shalom of those around us, but we will not compromise the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. When you don't compromise the lordship of Jesus in your life, there will be division. Now, we don't seek division. We seek peace. But just the very act of causing, the very act of living with Jesus as Lord will cause division. So be prepared for the division. But don't seek the division. Seek peace. And finally, Matthew 10.35 says, uh, Matthew 5.10-12 through 12 says, the final beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then this beatitude has a second part to it. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. Two very quick things I want to say about this. Notice, if you go back to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see how that matches the first beatitude. See that? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven is the same reward that was given after the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It concludes, it puts brackets around the Beatitudes. See that? 
Now, the persecution, again, be happy when you're persecuted. What? I, I, I've heard about enough of, of Christians in America saying how persecuted we are. First of all, you're supposed to expect to be persecuted. If you're actually living like Jesus is Lord, you're going to be persecuted. Second of all, you're supposed to be happy about it. <laughs> oh, the persecution is so terrible. Third of all, we're not really being persecuted. I mean, have you been persecuted to the point of, of uh, fearing for your life lately? I mean, no, right? Have you lost any property because of Jesus Christ? No. No. Were you mildly offended by something someone may have said? Yes. Okay, you're mildly offended, right? We should be recognizing that persecution because Jesus is Lord is a blessing. It's a blessing. And of course, John 15, 20. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Persecution is part of the deal, and it's a blessing. If you feel pressure at school because you're living for Christ, you're blessed by God. If you feel pressure at work because you're living for Christ, you're blessed by God. The blessings of God are upside down from what we would normally expect. How do we live like this? Here's how. You can't do it on your own. <laughs> Did you catch that theme today? See, people don't usually talk about the Beatitudes because they think they're impossible. But they are impossible on your own. How do we do this? We follow Jesus. We die to ourselves. We live with him as Lord in every area of our life all the time. That's a whole lot different than the way most people who claim to be Christians live their life. That's the calling of discipleship. And by the way, when you do it, you will be blessed. Thank you, God, for your blessings of citizenship in your kingdom. God, there's much to digest here. There's so much to learn. Speak to our hearts. Speak to our minds. May we be transformed from the inside out by you. In Jesus' name, amen.